0: Gangster Redemption, Chapter 9, The Worst of the Worst. Lawton left Oklahoma before the crack of dawn. At Oklahoma, prisoners rarely see daylight. He had arrived in the dark, and he was leaving in the dark. The plane's first stop was Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. After the plane had landed on the tarmac, Lawton sat there waiting in his seat for what seemed like an eternity. A lieutenant walked onto the plane and started reading off names. Prisoners got up and hobbled down the stairway at the back of the plane. Lawton could see prisoners standing in front of their assigned buses, again being searched for contraband. The air marshals then reloaded the plane with new inmates heading to God knows where. The next stop was Atlanta. After hearing all the horror stories, Lawton was beginning to feel an unsettling nervousness. You're a white boy in a prison with all black guards. You're in the shit of the shit, he was told. Another prisoner who had spent time there told him, the guards are going to beat your ass. Lawton thought to himself, how am I going to survive this? Lawton's name was called handcuffed and shackled he got up and shoveled off down the center aisle to the back of the plane name and number barked the huge black lieutenant lawton 52224004 he said still in irons he hobbled down the ramp and looked around the plane was surrounded by guards with shotguns no getting away from here he thought he headed to his assigned bus and waited to be searched lawton sat on the bus as it drove through the slums of Atlanta. There was a sign for the Atlanta Zoo. Fitting, he thought. Then he saw the prison, which was built in 1903. He could see the 40-foot-high walls that ringed the place. A series of gun towers were prominent. Underground, the concrete had been poured 20 feet below the ground level, a guarantee that no one would dig himself out. In one brick tower, Lawton noticed a flock of pigeons. He envied their freedom. In 1903, the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary was the largest poured concrete structure in the world, designed to make sure he wouldn't see the outside world for a long, long time. This place is a dungeon, he thought, as it was supposed to be. After all, it was designed to house the worst of the worst. Al Cabone had resided there in the 1930s. The Cuban criminals who made up a large part of the Mario Boatlift ended up there, as did Tommy Silverstein, perhaps the most violent criminal Atlanta had ever seen. Silverstein had been one of the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood, a Nazi hate group that targets blacks and Jews. In the 1970s, Silverstein was in the hole when someone passed him a key and he was able to slip his handcuffs. He murdered a Black Panthers by the name of Cadillac Smith, and when the guards came after him, he killed two guards, including a lieutenant. Silverstein was put in solitary confinement, alone with no human contact, and he's been in solitary confinement since 1983. He has since been moved to Leavenworth, Kansas. After the bus pulled into the garage, he could hear the gate clang shut behind him. Okay, file off, everyone was ordered. Lawton walked into the huge elevator with 15 other inmates. "'Turn around and get against the wall,' came the order from the burly guard with a deep voice. "'Nuts to butts! Tighten it up!' Lawton, who had traveled on a plane and a bus shackled for 12 hours, ached all over. "'I guess I'm not going to get any sympathy from this place,' he thought. The elevator ascended, and after it stopped, the elevator door opened, and everyone entered receiving and discharge. The prisoners were ordered into a large cell. One by one, the prisoners were uncuffed. They stood body to body, crushed in like cattle, as each prisoner's name was called for processing. Lawton, 52 Once they determined that Lawton was actually Lawton, the first thing they did was conduct a thorough body search. You lift your cock, bend over, and spread your ass. Then you squat and cough, said Lawton. They want to make sure you don't have any contraband on you. They check to see you're not suitcasing, hiding something up your rectum. Of course, you still can. Some of the prisoners were only staying at Atlanta overnight before being transferred to another prison. Those convicted of nonviolent crimes were going to Atlanta camp. Most, like Lawton, were headed to the Shoe, the special housing unit, or the Hole where each prisoner with violence in his record had to spend from a few days to a month while undergoing what is known as the captain's review. For his review, Lawton had to wait 10 days, and during this period, he learned just how hard living in the hole could be. The first thing I did was size up my celly, both physically and mentally, said Lawton. I'm good at that. I'm a pretty intimidating guy, even though I wasn't all tatted up like I am now, and I wasn't nearly as hard looking. His cellmate, he saw, wasn't going to be a threat, but that didn't mean he didn't feel uncomfortable over his situation. He was used to living on his own terms. He was used to having privacy. Quickly, Lawton learned that having the luxury of privacy was a thing of the past. Because he had been traveling on Conair. the first thing Lawton had to do when he was assigned a cell in the hall was make a bowel movement. But the toilet was not three feet from the bunk beds and there was another inmate already housed there who he didn't know. Lawton was used to privacy in the bathroom. This was entirely different. You got a shit, said Lawton. I asked him to turn around. I didn't want him watching me. When you're sitting on a toilet, you're used to being alone. I sat down on the toilet, and he laid on his bunk, his head at the far end of the cell, face towards the wall. If I had wanted to, I could have reached out and touched his leg. That's how close we were. This time I was lucky. My cellie was okay. Later, in other prisons, I had to room with cellies who were animals. That's when you fight in the cells. One time I beat a guy until he couldn't move. Because when you're locked in, it's either him or me. No referee. Lucky for him, I had a heart. I would have killed the guy. I was worried he was going to kill me first. But not this time. I became comfortable with my celly rather quickly. We started talking. If you don't get along, then when it's time to go to sleep, you better sleep with one eye open, which is what I did the first night anyway. Atlanta was one of those places where you never got comfortable. In the hole, Lawton quickly saw he and the other prisoners were at the mercy of the guards. You find you have nothing coming to you, said Lawton, meaning there's No point banging on the door saying, hey man, I don't have a blanket. What blanket? You're lucky you're alive in there. If you bang on the door, the guard comes up to the door and says, what do you want? You want a blanket? Now you don't get one. They do whatever they want to do. They're under the command of the fucking Gestapo. The inmates in the hall were also at the mercy of the elements. Temperature, both from the weather and from the water temperature of the showers, was a serious problem. Atlanta had air conditioning, but it was either broke most of the time or the guards were fucking with us, said Lawton. In the summer, the place was a sauna, and in the winter, the prisoners froze. We would beg for blankets. We didn't always get them. Showering was a problem because the guards controlled the temperature of the water. If a guard felt like it, he could turn off the hot water in the winter so the prisoners would freeze. But that wasn't nearly as bad, as when they turned off the cold water because the result was boiling hot water. When the guards turned off the cold water, Lawton quickly learned you couldn't shower or you would be scalded. One time, Lawton didn't shower for 14 days because the guards refused to turn the cold water back on. Lawton lay on his bunk in the hole, listening to the mayhem around him. "'You hear everything that's going on around you,' he said. "'You'll hear the other inmates talking or screaming.' You hear the drug deals going down. The orderly will come up to your window and say, do you need anything? What you got? I didn't have anything. I was new to the system. I didn't know how it worked. What he was saying was, if you need heroin, if you need weed, whatever you want, he got. And if you had it, he could find a buyer for it. The orderlies asked me, who do you know? He wanted to know if I had any connections. I was also offered credit if I wanted to buy drugs. Many times I saw guys who bought drugs on credit, and before they knew it, they had a heroin addiction. I kept a low profile. My goals were simple. I wanted air, food, and shelter. I told myself, that is all you have to worry about. Lawton would learn that he had one more goal, one more important even than the others, and that was survival. Finally, after two weeks in the hole, Lawton underwent captain's review. The captain, who is head of security, has to clear each prisoner for the yard. He and his staff do this by asking a series of questions to see if the prisoner has problems with any particular group or any particular inmate, or to find out if the prisoner fears for his life, in which case he might find himself in solitary confinement. The captain's review is important, said Lawton, because if you're a wise-ass and the captain doesn't like you, you can end up in the hole forever. Lawton's review went quickly. Do you have any problems on the yard? No. Do you have any, any separatists? Meaning, was there anyone with whom he had a beef? This could be someone involved in the prisoner's case, like a snitch, or it could be someone the prisoner had a fight with in another prison. Every new prisoner gets asked because if unchecked, These feuds can get somebody killed. No. Are you scared to be on the yard? No. All right, Lawton, pack up. Pack up what, Lawton thought. What the fuck do I have to pack up? Once in the general population, now Lawton really had to watch his back. He was one of 2,000 inmates at Atlanta. Most were in there for violent crimes, including murder, rape, and as in Lawton's case, armed robbery. About 800 of the prisoners were sentenced to life meaning they weren't going to get out and they had nothing to lose if they were to commit further mayhem. 200 were psychopaths who chased drugs and punks. Punks are guys who are gay or who were gay in prison and who were intent on escape, as impossible as that might be. Many of the inmates belonged to gangs, including the Aryan Brotherhood, the Bloods, the Crips, the Latin Kings, Sir Gangster Disciples, and a number of others. Worse for Lawton, most of the inmates were black guys with chips on their shoulders. Though he had no prejudice in his bones, Lawton quickly learned what it was like to be in the minority. Atlanta was a terrible place for a white guy to be, said Lawton. The Atlanta Penitentiary, fittingly near the Atlanta Zoo, was only 15% white. Of the 2,000 prisoners, only 375 were white, and 80% of the guards were black. And they hated white prisoners, said Lawton. Over and over he would hear, Who the fuck do you think you are? You're a white guy. Forget it. The white guards weren't much better, said Lawton. Most were out to prove themselves. Every day behind the concrete walls of Atlanta, crimes such as stabbings, rapes, robberies, drug dealing, extortion, prostitution, gambling, and pretty much any illegal activity you can think of took place. For inmates found to be a snitch a child molester, or someone not accepted in the minds of the inmates, the likelihood of a stabbing, a severe beating, or even murder was inevitable. I was a monkey in a cage, said Lawton. The trick was to avoid the worst of the worst and survive. After getting his bedroll, Lawton was assigned to cell block A1. Accompanied by guards, he and a half dozen other inmates had to walk past C-block, the long-term hole that consisted of five tiers of cells with iron bars like dungeons from the time of Al Capone was housed there. Lawton could hear the commotion coming from behind the steel doors. As Lawton headed towards A Block down a long passageway, he could hear all the commotion coming from D Block and B Block as well. As he entered A Block, all the inmates were looking at him. Not a word was uttered It was eerie because A1 had two tiers and the inmates were hanging over the top tier watching him in silence. On every floor in Atlanta, there are two guard stations where the guards often stay when not making rounds. They were looking too. As he walked past the cells toward the guard station, he noticed one inmate who looked just like a woman with his eyebrows and lips tattooed. These inmates who looked like women, of which there were many, were called punks, he would soon learn. Holy fuck, Lawton thought, this is a world unto itself. Cells were not assigned. The inmates picked their own cellmates. It was nerve-wracking because Lawton had no idea how the inmates approached each other. Who will be my cellie? he wondered. He was on the lookout for a white inmate who didn't appear to be a homicidal maniac. Lawton and an inmate by the name of Lee Sharrow found each other. As he walked by, Lawton was asked by Sharrow, Yo, where you from? That was always the first question asked. New York, said Lawton. Sharrow then began talking, asking him questions like, where'd you come from? Who was on the bus? How long have you been traveling? And then he asked, how long you got? I have four 12s, Lawton said, meaning had been hit with four 12-year sentences to run concurrently. Lawton was a little embarrassed. Compared to most everyone else, it was a very short sentence. Sharrow, who was from Pensacola, Florida, had attacked a man with an axe handle and killed him. He was serving a life sentence. Sharrow didn't want a Sully who was a snitch or a wacko. He wanted a Sully who would live and let live. Early on, Sharrow and Lawton clicked. Important because strangers who were going to be living in a very close proximity for a long, long time better get along. Hey, I got some toothpaste, said Lee. Hey, man, thanks a lot. Sharrow also gave him a pair of sneakers. Sharrow and Lawton together walked over to the guard. We're going to sell together, said Sharrow. Sharrow, it turned out, was part of the group of cool white inmates. The word went out, Lawton's a New York guy, a white guy, and he's okay. Lawton's next order of business was to get in touch with Vic Arena, who before his incarceration at Atlanta had been the acting boss of the Colombo crime family. Arena, convicted of murder and racketeering, received three life sentences plus 75 years in a federal penitentiary. In prison, Arena was an important person to know. Lawton asked Shara if he knew Arena. I have a letter for him, Lawton said. The letter was from Jerry Chili, a capo from one of the crime families who controlled the operations for the mob in Broward County, Florida, and in Hollywood, Florida. Lawton and Chili had met while Lawton was on trial for the jewelry store robberies. When Chili learned that Lawton was going to Atlanta, Chili wrote Arena a letter of introduction letting Arena know that Lawton was a stand-up guy. Vic Arena is in D-block, said Charo. He usually goes to the yard every day. You should see him there. His celly situation settled. Lawton's most fervent wish was to go outside on the yard. He had just been in the hole and traveling for the past six weeks, and he was dying to see and feel sunlight, and he badly wanted to meet Arena one of the most powerful inmates in the prison. Arena was on the yard, as advertised, and when Lawton gave him Chili's letter of introduction, he was greeted like it was an old home week. On day one, Lawton had found a cellmate, and for his protection and for companionship, joined Arena's group, which included other powerful mafioso, including the murderous Vic Amuso, once a soldier for Joe Gallo, but later the reputed boss of the Lucchese crime family. Amuso had killed several members of the Joe Profaci crime family. Also there was fearless Nicodemus Nicky Scarfo, the cold-hearted murderous boss of the Bruno Scarfo Philadelphia crime family. Scarfo was responsible for 28 murders, half of them murders of his own gang. He was also suspected of killing a federal judge. Pasquale Patti Amato, another member of the Colombo crime family, also was housed in Atlanta. Patti and Larry, often would sit on the yard, and on Sunday afternoons would listen to an Atlanta radio station that played Frank Sinatra from 2 to 4 p.m. The only good thing about Atlanta was that it had good radio stations, said Lawton. That's because we were in the city. Lawton got to know all these men. Often he would walk the yard with Nicky Scarfo, but he got to know Vic Arena the best. I learned that Vic had made some phone calls, found out I was a stand-up guy, and along with the note from Jerry Chili, That's why he took care of me. Being one of the guys helped me get through Atlanta. Lawton's first week on the yard wasn't too bad. Then he got in trouble. Lawton was standing with a group of white inmates, the cool guys, who began complaining about the food. Lawton had eaten the food, and it was disgusting. This was 1998, said Lawton, and we'd been given the meat from Desert Storm, which took place in 1992. One time I bit into the slop, and I almost chipped my tooth. The worst meat is cut right near the bone. It was disgusting. That's what they gave us. There was no way they could have sold this meat anywhere in the world. The guy said to me, go to the warden and tell him how shitty the food is. Maybe it'll help. Lawton, a newbie at Atlanta, didn't know it, but his cool friends were messing with him and leading him down a dangerous path. Atlanta was run by warden Willie Scott, a large, hulking black man known as Big Willie, the troubleshooting warden. During his career, Scott was sent to prisoners to straighten them out and impose discipline after a riot or other disturbances. He had so much pull that he could transfer an inmate without going to the regional office. He would say, put him on a bus, and the inmate would be shipped out to another prison that night. Warden Scott was a no-nonsense guy who didn't stand for backtalk, criticism, or even a wrong look or suggestion from inmates. Lawton's friends were having fun with him, and they knew what was going to happen. Lawton walked up to the warden, and he said, Warden Scott, the food here isn't very good. Oh, really, he said calmly. Hold on. He called the lieutenant over. Throw him in the hole, he ordered. And into the hole, Lawton was thrown. What the fuck did I do to be in the hole, asked Lawton. I said, the food's not that great. I didn't even say it was that bad. The injustice of it all made him boil with anger, and anger he had no way of dissipating. During his time in the hole, he was banging on the door to get attention of the counselor on the floor, a decent man by the name of Farley. I said to Farley, what kind of place is this, Disneyland? Farley was a big black guy who was pretty cool, said Lawton. What the fuck is going on, I said to him. This place is a fucking zoo. Larry, he said, just be quiet. Don't say anything. I always bitched. I couldn't help myself. And because he couldn't help himself, three of the 18 months he re- resided at Atlanta were spent in the hole. Unlike his stay in the hole before Captain's Review, this time Lawton was sent there as punishment. This time, his treatment wasn't as humane. He was put in a cell, stripped naked, and as punishment, the guards made him sit naked in the cold for a couple hours before they brought him his orange jumpsuit. It was winter, and you're on the floor in a fetal position, freezing your balls off, said Lawton. You're at their mercy. Two weeks later, he was returned to his cell on the yard. All the while, Lawton was learning what it took to survive. He learned to eat ramen noodles raw, which, when raw, looked like a chunk of straw. Then you drink a glass of water, and the noodles expand in your stomach, and you're full. When you go from being a millionaire riding around in a limo to eating ramen noodles raw to keep from being hungry, you truly understand the big picture. He also learned that to survive, he had to be vigilant every day. Imagine waking up every morning fearing for your life, said Lawton. I never slept past 6 o'clock in the morning. Every single morning, you put on your boots or your sneakers. You never know when you'll need them in a fight. You never look into a cell. One time I noticed an inmate being stabbed by two other inmates, and I just kept on walking. Another time I watched four inmates run in on a guy and stab him 30 times. The guy came staggering out of the cell, blood dripping everywhere, screaming. The four ran to ditch their shanks because they knew the guards would come running and there was going to be an investigation. Everyone knew who did it but no one was ever able to prove it. Another time, Lawton saw a guard tackled by an inmate. That doesn't happen in most prisons, but in Atlanta, the inmates with life sentences would go crazy and they didn't care. Lawton watched an inmate slam a guard to the ground and then kick him repeatedly. No one came to stop him until the other guards on the floor hit the alarm button and then dozens of guards and staff came running to his defense. I'm sure that inmate got the beating of his life, said Lawton. Lawton once heard the guards break the leg of the inmate in the next cell. He didn't see it, but he could hear the snap of the bone and the blood-curdling screams through the vent. You have no idea from where the danger will emanate, said Lawton. It could be from one or more of the guards or another inmate. It could come from looking at someone the wrong way, bumping into someone and not saying I'm sorry, or a slight real or imagined. Maybe someone thought you looked in his cell and saw something you shouldn't have seen, like a guy stashing his drugs or hiding his wine. Or perhaps a guy was fucking a punk. Or maybe the guy with the shank was just mentally ill, like an inmate by the name of Ozzy. Ozzy was a black inmate who went crazy, said Lawton. He taped two shanks, one to each hand, and he ran down the tier, stabbing anyone who was in his path. By the time he got to the end of the tier... All the guards came running. They were screaming, Drop the knife! Drop the knife! But the shanks were taped to his hands. They surrounded him and they sprayed him with mace. He didn't kill anybody. He just went crazy. There's a different code in a penitentiary than in any other prison setting, said Lawton. It's all about survival. Psychopaths rule the prison. That's the end of chapter 9. Next chapter is chapter 10, An Atmosphere of Violence. I'm hoping you're liking the reading of this. And if you'd like to hear the summarized version, you can go to our YouTube channel. Just go to type in Larry Lawton YouTube and you'll find uh, our YouTube channel. And please subscribe there and uh, support our channel as we, as we go through this process of trying to gain, gain fans and make social justice. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you like it. And uh, we'll be back for Chapter 10 in a few days.